0: So today's sermon, you can you can pull this, <laughs> not all the way down, because it won't record, just pull it, yeah. Uh, so today's sermon is going to be basically a prelude to next week's sermon for Easter Sunday. So let me kind of show you how this has worked out. I promise you this, I promise you that when we began the book of John, we didn't map it out to where certain verses would fall on certain Days, I promise you, I'm not that organized, I'm not that administrative, I'm not that thoughtful at all. This is just one of those situations where the Lord has just guided us to a certain text for a a certain day. So today's text, you basically have John, the forerunner, who we're given John's testimony, and John is preparing the way for Christ, and John is basically saying these things about Jesus... Some investigation is conducted based on who this madman is out in the woods saying these things, or out in the wilderness saying these things, and he gives a very, very interesting response to those that are coming to him asking, who are you? Who are you to be saying these things? Who are you to baptize? Who who are you anyway? And so, but what we'll see is next week is where Jesus actually enters the scene, Because the scripture begins by saying, behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And then you get into this interesting conversation where this week, John just says, I baptize with water, and he puts a cap on it. But then next week, you see something like, I baptize with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So I can't think of a better discussion to have, such as baptism of the Holy Spirit on Easter Sunday. Okay, so so, uh, so that's coming, and some of you might really... Appreciate that in this room. So um, we'll get to that next week. But we'll start this week with a testimony of John. So Austin read to you verses 19 through 28. And I just want to re emphasize how this text begins. And this is the testimony of John. Your testimony should matter. My testimony should matter. All right, especially if we're given an eyewitness account, we're the people that should have the most authority to give our own testimony. Okay, so I should say as an honest person, this is my story. This is what has happened. This is what I've experienced. And there should not be a more credible source to my testimony other than me, because it's my testimony. It's my life. It's my story. So I think it warrants us approaching this text, seeing John as having a certain level of credibility and certain credentials, as after all, he was the one that was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, which none of you were, by the way, seeing how he was the one that was set apart and sent by God to deliver this message that was so contrary to what first century Judaism taught, or what Judaism teaches today. And so, Here we have John's testimony. It says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, saying, who are you? Why in the world did what John was doing warrant any sort of investigation? So let's just peruse very quickly what John's testimony was. So I'm gonna kind of... Jump forward, just to kind of let you know what we're doing. That's the beauty of 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 hindsight. It's the beauty of looking at all the things that have come to pass. Uh, But I won't be exhausted with this. Just to let you know, here's the basic outline. This is what warranted the investigation: is that John argued that he wasn't the Christ, but that something better is coming. That the Christ is coming. John is. Saying, I'm the forerunner for Christ. I've been set apart. I've been sent by God for such a task as this. So he argues that he's not the Christ. He argued that he is the one about whom Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40, chapter 3. If you go back 700 years, I believe it's somewhere around in there, 700 plus years, you have Isaiah who is saying, There will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, Make way or make straight the way of the Lord or prepare the way of the Lord, depending on which uh, translation that you're reading. So John is on the scene now saying, I'm that one. I'm the one that Isaiah spoke of. And keep in mind, this is first century Judaism. These are Jewish people who would understand the Old Testament. I'm not saying they understand and applied it all correctly. I'm saying they knew that this would have been said by Isaiah the prophet. So this is causing a stir you have to admit that. You have to see that this definitely warranted some kind of investigation because you have these Jews, specifically these priests and these Levites who had something to do with the law and speaking of the law and all of these things, sent by the religious, the religious higher-ups, the Pharisees. They send them out, and they want to inquire as to who this person is that's saying these things because this matters. You need to understand that this matters. John is making a major claim here. This is a big deal. He's saying, listen... You Jewish people, you believe what the prophet Isaiah said. I'm telling you that I am in part the fulfillment of what he said, because I am in fact the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. He also preached repentance, and he preached that something better was coming along. Something better than what? Something better than anything. Most definitely something better than the Jewish law. Something better than a works-based salvation. Something better than Judaism in that sense. He's saying something better is coming. Now, in hindsight, we look and we say, he brought a new covenant. And that changed everything because you and I are under this new covenant. People are grafted in, and there's all these wonderful things that happen. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is all of these things. Jesus didn't abolish the law, but he fulfilled it. There's no contradictions in the text. The Scripture says that regarding this law, nothing will pass away, and it hasn't. Jesus has fulfilled it. That's why you're not going to stand before God and Him say, you know what? I need to hear that you lived perfectly, that you kept the law perfectly. That's not the question. The question is, did you trust Jesus and His work that kept the law perfectly? All right, so this is a part of the message. He's saying, repent. His message is a message of repentance, showing that this is not a works-based salvation. This is a faith-based salvation. Because what did those Pharisees lean on? Leaned on their works. He leaned on their works. And what John is essentially saying is that's not going to cut it for you. That's not going to be enough for you. If you stand before God and say, but I kept your law, first of all, the response will be, no, you didn't, because no one can. It's impossible. Because we have to rely on the obedience to the law, the fulfillment that Christ did in fulfilling the law. So John's out there. He's a, either he's a sent man or he's a madman. And I think it's easy to see that he might be a madman. I mean, the guy ate wild locust and wild honey. He wore weird clothing. I'm sure he wasn't the trendiest fella. And he stays out there in the wilderness and he's preaching. Why wasn't he in the temple? Why wasn't he in Jerusalem? Why wasn't he close to where everybody was, to where he could influence the Pharisees and all of these religious zealots? Why wasn't he there, which I'll unpack in a little bit, I think, and I'm borrowing some information from a scholar that I trust, but we'll kind of touch that in just a second. But you got to understand the perspective of these people, whether they're the Jews or not. There's information coming from the, from the wilderness that this guy's doing something that's completely contrary to what they've seen before. And either you investigate that and find out what's what, or you ignore it because that's just probably a madman and not a sent man. I mean, you've all heard crazy stories before. You've heard crazy stories and you think, I don't know if I can believe that. I need to investigate that a little bit. I need to see if this is really happening. Because what if this is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness? What if the Messiah really is here? Not that they believed that when they heard, but but what if, what if, what if? Because these are the promises and they believed something was coming. They just didn't believe John's message, that it was actually here. It was Jesus. I could tell you funny stories. I could tell you a story, whether you believe it or not, about a guy that I went to college with. His name was Will. I won't tell you his last name in case you Facebook him. His name was Will. I don't know if he's on Facebook. I imagine not. And I remember thinking, that's a strange cat. Now, I left my happy bubble in Columbus, Mississippi, and I thought I knew strange, but I didn't really know strange people. But then I got to college, and I realized there are strange people out here. And I was in a nice Baptist bubble college, but there were still strange people there. But there was this guy named Will who was especially strange And I took it upon myself to find out what makes Will tick. I told you last year, or last week, sorry, I told you last week that I'm interested in the mechanics of things, how things work, rather than, I don't want to just know the what, I want to know the why, I want to know the how, especially when it comes to uh, the doctrines of the Bible. You know, I don't want to just camp out on generalities, but I want to move past that and say, why is this the way it is? What makes this thing happen? And it was like this with Will. Will was a different, different, different person. He wasn't the only different person that was there. We had one guy named Jody who walked around with a paper mache rooster, and he walked around campus with this. Ladies, if you ever go to college or stay on campus, or men, if you ever go to college and stay on campus, young men, just get ready, because that's where the world really gets a little different, and then so on and so forth. So, and I don't know what circles you run in, but there was one guy who ran around with a rooster, but this guy, Will, was just different. I thought, you know, I'm going to befriend Will. That way I'll know it makes him tick. You can challenge my motives if you want to. You know, I was going to give him the gospel, but I'm like, I got to figure out who this guy is. This is a strange guy. And I'd never met one of those before. And so I got to know Will a little bit. And I remember my first exchange with him. I was in the bathroom on third floor of Polk Hall, and I was brushing my teeth, getting ready for class. And Will comes in, and he's brushing his teeth, and he just stares at himself. I may have tried to interact with him, it was a to no avail. But I remember Will just brushing his teeth and he stood, he just stood in the mirror and stared at himself for a while. And I thought, how is this gonna play out? So I'm staying, because I want to see what he's gonna do. And he just sticks his finger way back in his mouth, pulls it out with a big gob of spit and toothpaste, and goes, Rip, and then walks away. I thought, what does that mean? Did he place a curse on me? You know, I was worried about this. What's he doing? So that's one episode that went by. Later, I tried to get in his room. I knock on his door because I wanted to see what was in his room because nobody had been in his room. And he finally opens the door just so I can see his nose. I'm like, Will, how's it going? Let's hang out, man. He tries to shut the door, but I put my foot there. You know, I could overpower Will. He weighed about 100 pounds soaking wet, but I wasn't going to do that because I wanted to have a friendship with him or at least find out about him. And so I kind of pushed my way through, and I see two things that were just covering the floors in his dorm room. Pizza and swords. I'm pretty sure swords like this were illegal at William Carey College, now William Carey University. All right? So I'm like, why does he have all those swords? And then the door shuts, and now my, peaks, my, my interests are really peaked. So as time goes on, I try to have conversations with Will as I would see him around campus. And then things got really strange when I started coming into my dorm room. We didn't lock it too often. We started locking it after this. But I would go inside, and in the pitch black dark... Will would be sitting there on my couch in the dorm room. No TV, no radio, definitely no no smartphone you could scroll through during the day. He just sat there in pitch black darkness. I'd cut on, cut on the light, and imagine my surprise. You've got Will sitting on the edge of the table, just staring straight at the TV, mind you. I thought, this guy's weird. And I could tell you this story. I could tell you a lot, a lot of other stories about a lot of other people. And sometimes you might be like, I don't know. Is he exaggerating? You thought, hmm. Man, if I could just investigate that, if I could just be there, if I could see it for myself, if I could hear it for myself, if I could make some sense of this. I think this is kind of what's going on in the mind of these Jews and the minds of these Pharisees who then sent out the priests and who sent out the Levites to go and make inquiry as to what in the world was going on and who this person was. And that's exactly what happened. So look at the text. It says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Who are you? Keep in mind, the Jews would not be happy with John's message at all because it defied the possibility of salvation through keeping the law. He's saying, repent because you are a sinner. Repent because you are broken. You are a product of the fall. And no amount of good works, no amount of memorizing the law can help you. No amount of keeping the law because that's impossible. Unless you're Jesus himself, then you wouldn't need salvation. So, they didn't like this, so they come and they ask him the question, Who are you? And he defends himself, first of all, or he deflects. He says, Well, first, I'm not the Christ. Let's be clear about this. I'm not the Christ. Because they ask him a few questions. Okay, listen, you're doing this, you're doing that. People are listening to you, you're baptizing. By what authority are you baptizing? What's going on? Who are you? And he first says, I want to be clear about something. And this is where he starts I am not the Christ. And I think he's drawing a definite line of distinction. I think he's setting the t- tone right there and saying, the Christ has not yet come, or he's come, but you haven't. He, he's, he, well, he's, he's around the bend, basically. This is the one who's coming. This is, everything's about to blow wide open, right? And so he says, I'm not the Christ. He answered this because the authority from which he spoke was unlike the authority of the Jewish leaders. They saw something in him, and he wanted to be clear. I'm not, I'm not the Christ. They says, well, are you Elijah. And you would wonder, why would they think that he's Elijah? Elijah was dead and gone. Well, what's interesting is is that in Malachi 4, 5, it says, behold, Malachi's prophesying. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're familiar with the old law. They're familiar with Old Testament writings, Old Covenant. And they're thinking, Malachi says this, could this be Elijah? Which I would say, this is probably a fair assessment. You've read this, you're believing something's coming. So let's ask, are you Elijah? You're not the Christ. Okay, got that. Are you Elijah? Because Moses told us such and such, or Malachi told us such and such. He says, nope, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah at all. Then they say, well, what about a prophet? If you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, are you at least a prophet? And I think the reason that they ask this is because in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, Moses predicts a prophet to come. And he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So maybe they're thinking, okay, Moses has told us this. You're not Elijah. Malachi said something's coming. We're just asking. Moses told us something's coming. You know, you're obviously saying something's happening. You're acting and speaking like you're some prophet. So let's just ask. So you got to tip your hat where tipping your hat is due. Ask the question. Go to the source and try to find out, okay, who exactly are you anyway? And see, I would say this, where there is maybe a part of me that would tip my hat to them and say, at least they're trying to figure out things. Here, where I'd say they messed up. They're asking the wrong question. Or maybe they're asking the right question. They're just asking it about the wrong person. Because the concern shouldn't be, who are you, way preparer? It should be, whose way are you preparing? That's, that's how we operate in society, is it not? When I come home on a good, long, hard day of work, <laughs> where my income supports 5% of my family and their needs, when I come home and I'm hungry and I smell spaghetti, and not just any spaghetti, I smell guest spaghetti. You got it. You got it. Y'all are so great. You listen and everything. You listen to everything I say. I smell guest spaghetti. Do I go to the source and say who is that that prepared this guest spaghetti? Do I make inquiries about the source of the spaghetti? No, I don't. I say, for whom is this spaghetti prepared? Because it's not me. Who's showing up at our house that you've labored over this wonderful? Spaghetti. We never had spaghetti. Right? We have, we have spaghetti. <laughs> so let me let me let me tease out the illustration because it it, it just it it just it, it, it travels. The train I mean it's it's an obvious illustration. The idea of rolling out the red carpet for someone. We get that. There's someone that's special that's going to come and walk this red carpet, okay? Celebrities think that they're special. They have a big red carpet and they have this event called the Red Carpet Event, right? And so these are the who's who of our culture. These are the who's who of Hollywood that come. So there's this idea that you're rolling this out because someone special is coming. You know what? No one asks about who rolled the carpet. No one says that. No one says who rolled the carpet because they don't care. It's a peon somewhere that rolled the carpet. I'm telling you, John is saying, I'm a peon. All right? I'm not the one that you're to make much ado about, but there's one coming that we are going to make much about. So the question is not proper, or it's the right question, but just not asked of the right person. The question is not, who are you, John? The question is, of whom do you speak? Because this is significant. So we need to ask that type of a question. And I think there's great application here. Let me ask you this. Do you ever find yourself asking the wrong question? You would say, well, all the time. Let me give you an example. Here's a wrong question, very practical example. I'll tell you what my mom did for me when I was younger. Hey, mom, can I go to the bathroom? Sure you can. I don't know, can you? You're asking it the wrong way, right? May I go to the bathroom? That's the way that my mom taught me grammar and language, which didn't work very well. What if someone says, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The question is not asked correctly. I heard Votie Balken one time speak on this, and he says, look, we're asking the question the wrong way. Why do bad things happen to good people? Where do you get this idea that there are good people? The only goodness that anybody has is Jesus and his righteousness imputed to them. So it's not that you're good. The question is, why does any good thing happen to a rebellious people? Why does any good thing happen? Not just why does bad things happen to good people, but why does any good thing happen? You see, we change the question. It changes the meaning. There's a perspective shift. Maybe you ask questions like, why is God silent? And I'm not saying these questions are intrinsically wrong, but I'm trying to make some application because these are things I've said to myself. These are things you read in the Bible. How long, O Lord, will you remain silent? You read through the Psalms and you hear David over and over crying out to God saying, when will you speak? When will you you say something? So why is God God silent? I would say there are times that maybe we're asking the wrong question and maybe the question should be, God, what would be preventing me from hearing you clearly today? You see, it changes things. Because You approach it with a humble disposition. You approach it with a certain disposition that offers recognition to things that deserve the recognition. That God is all powerful. That he does all things out of his perfections. And that you are a nobody. Now in Christ for somebody, don't get me wrong. I want to be clear about that. I'm not saying, oh, you should all go beat yourselves because you're absolutely worthless. In Christ, in Christ you have so much worth. But outside of Christ there's no one righteous. No, not one. No one that does good. What if you ask yourself, why doesn't he listen to me? God, why are you silent? And then maybe you ask, why are you not listening to what I'm saying? Have we not all been there? You pray, you're asking God to respond in these prayers, and you hear nothing. You get nothing. You don't catch a thing. And you're saying, God, why don't you respond? Why don't you listen to me? Why aren't you hearing what I'm saying? You're crying out. You're asking for a loved one to be delivered. You're asking for someone who's battling some illness, and you're like, well, I just want them to be healed. God, are you listening to me? Why don't you answer me? Why don't you respond to me? Maybe it's someone who's lost, and you're saying, God, would you save them? You don't get anything. Maybe you pursue somebody for years and years and years, and they don't respond in faith to the gospel. You say, God, why aren't you listening? Why aren't you paying attention to the work that I'm doing for you and for your glory? Maybe the question needs to be, Ask God if your motives and your desires are compatible with the will of God for your life and the, will of the God, will, and the will of God for others' lives. God, why won't you let me have this one thing? I've prayed that. I just want this one thing. That's all I pray. I didn't pray that about the Jeep, okay? Calm down, all right? I didn't pray that God would give me. I mean, he can if he wants to. You know, I said, God, you can give me a Jeep. That's not me asking, though, right? It's just acknowledging that God can do stuff. You people are ridiculous. Okay, so why won't you let me have this one thing? Instead, maybe we should ask God to reveal to us what's best for us by allowing or denying us our desires. God, just give me this thing. Maybe we should just ask it the other way. Reveal to us what's best by allowing or denying me this desire. Let's, let's talk about spiritual morality. And maybe questions that we have. Let me ask you this Do you ever ask yourself, or do you ever ask this question, God? And maybe you don't say it directly, but we ask it in some way God, what can I get away with and still be okay with Jesus? Don't we play that game all the time? What can I get away with? Can I do this to this level and still be okay? You know, maybe we compare ourselves with others and we say, you know what, God, I might have these problems. I might have these vices. I might have these addictions. I might have this going on, but I'm not this, right? I'm not this person. I'm not going through or struggling with what they're struggling with. So, Lord, maybe it's okay for me. I can get by with this. And maybe we should ask God if he would be gracious enough to help us deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow him. Maybe we should ask it and that way, rather than what can I get away with, God give me strength, be gracious to me to deny myself so that I don't try to get away with anything. So that's regarding spiritual morality. What about regarding, just regarding truth? And this is a big one, whether you realize it or not, this is a big one, because we rationalize, we justify our approach to truth, to absolute truth, to the degree that we reject, maybe not we, but as a culture, we reject absolute truth. And it's for the most ridiculous reasons. It doesn't land well with me. It doesn't stir my emotions or my affections the way that I want it to. It doesn't give me warm fuzzies. So it must not be true. Okay, so that takes absolute truth and flips it on its head, and then we give it a new title. We say it's relative truth. Because I'm only going to hold on to something that is most palatable for me, that's most digestible for me. So if I walk to the scriptures and I see hard things that Jesus is saying, look, this is exactly how the Jehovah's Witness movement came about. In 1872, something like this Charles Taze Russell came to the Holy Scriptures, which far predated anything that he ever wrote, far predated anything that the Watchtower and Tract Society ever published and Joseph Smith comes not to mention that we have over 24,000 pieces of manuscript over oh, almost 6,000 full manuscripts and then when you piece all these other New Testament manuscripts together we have 24,000 and there's a 95% accuracy rate or 99 sorry 99.5% accuracy rate when you look at one manuscript to the next these people that have were charged with making sure that we have the word of god How do you take these clear things in the text that are so consistent from one scribe to the next, and then you read something about hell, which Jesus spoke so much about hell. He spoke so much out of justice, and then all of a sudden you reject it. And you deny and ignore just the plain teachings of Scripture, whether it's the doctrine of hell, whether it's the doctrine of of sexuality. No matter what it is, how can you come to the plain teachings of Scripture and just say, I deny it. I deny it. It's because you're making truth. Your own. You're rejecting an absolute, absolute truth. So, do you ask this, God? Surely you don't mean that, do you? That's a hard pill for me to swallow. And a lot of people base their hermeneutic, their interpretation of the Bible, based on a feeling they get when they read the text or a feeling they don't get when they read the text. And they're asking the wrong question. Maybe they should ask God. Help me to reconcile these truths that are more difficult for me to process and accept. Help me to look past my emotions because they will lead me astray. Help me not to follow my heart because it is deceitful and desperately wicked, but help me to respond to truth. Don't you understand? That's why the scripture doesn't say my people worship me in spirit and truth. Jesus laid down this framework for acceptable worship. And you know what? He didn't include your heart. He didn't include your emotions. He said spirit and truth. There it is. You want to know the recipe for successful God-honoring worship? You want to truly have your praises inhabited by God? Have these two requirements, truth and the Spirit of God. Nothing about your heart. That's the beauty of it. You can come in here and you cannot feel like it. You cannot feel like I don't want to worship. I don't want to do all of these things because I'm not feeling it. I had a fight with my spouse. I had a fight with my sister. I'm angry at my kids. I wanted to punch them in the face. And so I'm upset about these things. I come here. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to sulk. I'm going to be mad. Guess what? That's okay. Because worship is not contingent upon your emotion. Worship, emotion can be a byproduct of such. But that's why we go through from time to time. We say, what is truth? What is truth? What is truth? What is truth? Not as what? Not, not as not what is your truth, but what is absolute truth. What do we get from the text? That he is our peace. That he is our hope. That when we are weary and heavy laden, he will give us rest. We cling to these truths and we say, God, I am, I'm not feeling it today. I feel angry. I feel upset. I've got work tomorrow and I've got my boss, boss breathing, breathing down my neck. I've got all these things going on. But you know what? I'm here to worship. And worship is not contingent upon my emotion." but upon truth and upon the Spirit of God. So ask God to help you reconcile the truths that are more difficult for you to process. So I think they asked the wrong question. And we asked the wrong question. But getting back to the text, it's interesting because in verse 20, John gives a response. I've already told you, he said he's not the Christ. He says these things. I'm not Elijah, I'm not a prophet. But listen to this. He confessed And did not deny, but confessed, it says, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? He said, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. We can't come back empty handed because there's a stir that you've created here. You know, we're trying to determine whether you are a sent man or whether you're a madman. You look mad. You wear crazy clothes, you eat crazy food, and you're out here. You won't won't come in here to the city. You're not saying these things in the temple. You're out here in the wilderness. And why? We need to give some kind of response to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said this, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor a prophet. And John answered them and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. When I look at John's response, you may not see it, I see it, so I'm going to share it with you. When I look at John's response, what I see in the middle of his response is humility, condemnation. In Revelation, in his response, and let me share with you how I find these things, or or, let me share with you these things that I found. I think his response was steeped in humility. When John could have responded in this way, because we remember who John was, right? John was the son of Zechariah. He was the son of a priest. Who came to make these inquiries to John? Priest. He could have said, well, look, you know, you have sons probably, you know, my my, my dad's a priest, right? Right? And, and uh, you know, you're a priest, so we're kind of connected in that way. He could have said that, or he could have said, hey, I'm the son of a priest. Like, this is some really big deal. Not that the other priests had sons. He could have said, I'm the son of a priest. He could have said, I was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. I mean, that would have taken them aback a little bit. I was son of the priest, but not only that, I was filled with the spirit in the womb. That would have blown their minds. He didn't say that. He could have listed that among a sheet of credentials, but he didn't do that. He could have said, I was set apart and sent here by Jehovah. Now, that would have really landed some kind of way with them, but he didn't say that either, not directly. But what did he say? He denied being the Christ Because how dare he, in any way, allow them to even remotely come close to thinking that he was anything like the one that was to come. He says, but I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Arthur Pink has some interesting arguments for why John stayed in the wilderness. Obviously, fulfilling prophecy, right? Right? But what's the why behind the prophecy? Potentially. I'm not saying the Bible reveals this to us, but it's an interesting thing to think about. And it absolutely does reveal to us the state of the nation, of the Jewish nation. Listen to this I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Why not the temple? Why not in the middle of Jerusalem? Well, the temple was devoid of Jehovah. Much like Judaism, it was a hollow shell. John could have been in the wilderness because it symbolized the spiritual barrenness of the Jewish nation. And this is the message he's essentially sharing. Repent, because what you're doing is not enough. The Jews desperately needed freedom from a works-based religion that could not save them. John knew that. And that's what he's preaching. So I think there's great humility in what he says. But because he realized their desperate need of salvation because of their situation being so dire, so destitute, I think we not only see humility in his response, but I think we see condemnation in his response. Listen, follow with this, he says, he says um, go back, he says, Who do you, What do you say about yourself from the voice of the one crying in the wilderness? Make straight the way of the Lord. Fast forward, here we go, to John uh, to 26. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one that you do not know. You don't know. The Christ has been with you for 30 years, and you do not know it. You do not know him. This is revelatory of the spirituality, of the bankruptcy, of the darkness that these people are in because they don't even. No. One scholar says this, many, many, many churches, Christ is at the center of many a congregation, all the while unseen and unknown. All the while unseen and unknown. This is where they are. You have, just think back for a moment, just to get a backup and get a, a, a more of a panoramic image of this. For us, John has said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. You have God, Jehovah, God becoming flesh, and people didn't even know it. Now he came as a human, he came as a man, he came as one who would not be esteemed, he would be stricken, smitten of God, none would esteem him, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but they couldn't see him at all. So John's response was not only humble, but it was steeped with condemnation because among you stands one that you do not know. Nicodemus is the prime example. We'll see this. I'll go ahead and share it briefly because it'll be a little while before we get there. But Nicodemus is the quintessential example of a natural mind seeing only natural things. The natural mind cannot see the supernatural. And this is what happened during the exchange between Jesus and And Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes out. He says, Rabbi, I know that you're a teacher. I know that you're from God. I know something is significant. Something is special about you. And he says to Jesus, I need to know something. I have a question for you. Good question, Nicodemus. Here it is. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be right? What must I do for everything to be okay? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And how does Nicodemus respond? How can a man go into his mother's womb a second time? You see, until the Lord awakens faith... And the Lord gives us eyes to see this language is nonsensical to to anybody. Any lost person might have the same response. How do I go into my mother's womb a second time? And then the, the passage clearly states that a natural mind can only see the natural things. So Nicodemus is the example. He's what we see. That helps us understand the spiritual state, the devastating reality of the state of the Jewish nation. So John's response was steeped in condemnation. It was steeped in humility. But the final thing I see in his response is that, John, that John's response was the revelation of better things to come. I mean, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. He said, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And then he says... The statement of comparison. He first says, I do not baptize. He doesn't follow up with, say, this one, Jesus, right now. He doesn't say right now he baptizes in spirit. He just says, I baptize. Meaning, I only do this much. I can't save, I can't rescue, I can't redeem. I'm just going through a symbolic act. He says, I baptize with water, implying that Jesus baptizes with something different. And then he says, I'm not worthy to untie a sandal. His sandal. Let this settle in your minds for just a moment. I know you've heard a lot of discussion probably over the years, or maybe you haven't, about how filthy the feet were considered when you look at the first century. You know, as far as technological advancements are concerned, they had sandals. That's technology. It's an advancement. They went from barefoot to sandals. But the feet were understood to be so filthy. This is why when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, it was so monumental. This is why it pictured so well the fact that he became a servant. Because he would go to the dirtiest part of the human body. What was just... So nasty, exposed to the dirt and the manure and all kinds of stuff that they would walk around, walk through all day, every day, just vile and nasty. And John is very intentional with his words, and he says, I'm not worthy to untie the sandal that wraps dirty feet. And He's saying that so that we can see that something much greater is on the way. Something so great is on the way. He didn't say, I'm not Worthy to tighten his belt or the sash around his robe or whatever. He didn't say that. He said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. And so at this point, it would be good to get into a lot of the, not just the the what, but the why is Jesus so much better. But I'm going to save that for next week because I want to have plenty of time to unpack why Jesus is so much better. What does it mean that he's a lion from the tribe of Judah? But let me make this application. The admonishment to all of us, who unlike John's immediate audience, looks forward to what was coming, we get to look back at what has already arrived. We look back at all of these things. They're trusting and hoping for years and years, for centuries, they're hearing and reading the prophecies Over time, they're saying, something's coming. This is what we were promised. We're waiting for these things to happen. And then all of a sudden, 700 years after Isaiah 43 was spoken, you have John who's on the scene just as the Scripture said. So now there's this investigation. What's happening? Is this legitimate? Is this real? Maybe they're excited. Maybe they're nervous. Either way, it's caused a stir and it's caused inquiry, and so they're checking these things out, but they are looking to what is ahead. They're looking to the promise of something better that's coming, and we have the privilege of looking to what has already come. We have the privilege of looking to Jesus and the fulfillment of all these things, which doesn't take that much faith because it's history. All these things were spoken, all these things were said, and then you would think after hundreds of years, after centuries, maybe you would think, ah, maybe nothing's going to happen, and then it does, and it does again, and another prophecy fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled. The Lord is just continuously pulling back the curtain for us and saying, I'm showing you myself, I'm showing you my faithfulness, I'm encouraging you, I'm increasing your faith, I'm showing you that you can trust me in all things. I'm showing you my plan, I'm showing you my design, and that's grace. Be careful not to live as though the Messiah has not yet come. Because I think Christians do that. When you fall into despair, destitute, I don't mean you have a chemical issue going on and you're subject to depression. I don't mean that. I mean when things in this world rob you of your joy left and right, that is like you're living as though the Messiah hasn't come. As if you haven't had a rescuer. As if a hero hasn't entered the scene and rescued you. And you can't live like that. Of course, we are sojourners and we will eventually be united in God's eternal kingdom. But we are not alone now. We are not. So you live in the victory that Christ provided. In the midst of hardship, you still have hope. You still have joy. The sorrow lasts through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And where does that come from? It comes from a victory secured by a Savior so many years ago, proving that something better was promised, something better came. And we get to reap the benefits and the rewards of what Jesus accomplished. So don't live as though you don't have a hero, and don't live as though he hasn't rescued you. Remind yourself of the better reality that we have in Jesus as opposed to the reality of those who are in opposition to him. Because this should be sobering to you. If you're not in Christ, the way that it is viewed according to God is that you are lined up in battle array against Him. And He is lined up in battle against you or against those who are against Him. When you read the scriptures and you see what it means to be outside of Christ, and God uses words like enemy, hostile, these aren't endearing terms. What did Jesus say? of Judas, who is in opposition, he said, you masso perdidio, you mass of destruction, you son of damnation. These are not endearing terms. This is language of an enemy. We were enemies of God, enemies of the cross. But then you come across this wonderful little verse that says, but God, but God made us alive together. In Christ Jesus. But God being rich in love, I believe it says, has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. Always remember that something better came along 2,000 years ago, and He is still holding strong as the best thing the world has ever known. We would do well as followers of Christ to maintain a humble posture in all things. And I want to end with this application because it appeared earlier where we see the humility of John you see, Galatians six fourteen says, but far be it from me, Paul says, to boast except in the cross or to, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We would do well to be humble as followers of Christ, always pointing the world to something better when our natural proclivities are probably to point the world to ourselves. But I've done this. I've accomplished this. I've achieved this. It doesn't take much to say, I'm going to decrease so that Christ will increase, which was said by John the Baptist. Final illustration, and I'll be done. I've watched a lot of interviews with wrestlers who were contemporaries of Andre the Giant, not a wrestling nut or anything like this. I do like Bill Goldberg, but anyway... Okay, so, but I watched these interviews with these wrestlers and how they talked about Andre the Giant. And you need to know that Andre the Giant single-handedly helped build the sport of wrestling. He was a mountain of a human being. Andre the Giant weighed over 500 pounds, and that was when he was in shape. And then his health started to deteriorate because of all the punishment that he took because his body was way too big, so on and so forth. And he got over 700 pounds, according to Hulk Hogan because he weighed on this big freight-type scale. His strength was almost supernatural and unmatched during his time. Wrestlers such as Hulk Hogan and big guys like this, who were mountain, mountainous men, would say, Andre the Giant dictated everything that happened in the ring. Andre would sit at his table playing cards while he was in the, the, the room, wherever they were on that particular evening. And wrestlers like Hulk Hogan, wrestlers like the Ultimate Warrior, wrestlers like the Iron Sheik, whom Andre the Giant didn't like, wrestlers who were big-name wrestlers would come in and just hope that Andre would say, yeah, this is what's going to happen. And most of the time, he would just tell them to leave. Sometimes they would come in, and they'd be too oiled up, and he'd say, too much oil. They'd walk out and clean themselves up. Because Andre was truly the king of the ring. He was. He was the king of the ring. It has been said by numerous wrestlers that Andre dictated every match that he was in. They were just hoping hoping that he wouldn't destroy them, hoping that they might get a win, hoping that he wouldn't crush their face with his hand because it was enormous. He ruled the ring. When he stepped in it, it was as though he stepped into his creation and all others were in complete subjection to him and to his desires. That's exactly what happened. This is what the wrestlers that wrestled him said. When Hulk Hogan, years and years ago, actually body slammed Andre, it was because Andre leaned over to him during the match and said, slam And Hogan's like, okay, we'll do this. In a very literal sense, Jesus stepped into his creation as a slave, yet the master of all things. And all things are under under his subjection. They're in subjection under him. So Jesus steps in as the God-man. And he became, he came because we rebelled and were in need of rescue from our own doings. We could not rescue ourselves. We were so entrenched in our own transgressions that we didn't even want out or realize that we needed rescuing from the beginning. But God in his loving kindness made us alive together in Christ Jesus. And that should humble you. That should humble you. So when you leave here, realize I am in subjection under the foot of Christ. All things were placed in subjection under his feet. He's the creator and he has stepped into his creation, John 1:14. And we should all be humbled By the fact that he came as the king, as the creator, as the savior, yet as a servant, as a slave. And he rescued all who would believe from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So I'll close with this thought. As I talked about questions and asking the right question versus asking the wrong question, I think when we leave, we must ask ourselves this question. The right question is Who is Jesus? Why is he relevant for me? And why is he relevant for today? And I think that's what you ask yourself all the time. Remind yourself why you're submitted to the true King of Kings, what he's done for you, what he's done for the world, of all who would believe what he's done. And let that be a source of humility, and let that be a source of truth that drives you to worship every day and to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily, and to follow him. Let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed.